Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm Kelly Blahos, and together with Daniel Larison, we help sift through the foreign policy and national security headlines each week, looking for clues to truth and reality, and more often than not, finding a lot of spin and manipulation. So Crashing the War Party is our effort to untwist those pretzels of logic and help understand some of the most important geopolitical issues facing Americans today and trying to see them as they really are. This week, we're doing things a bit differently. Daniel is under the weather, so I am winging it solo. And so we'll be jumping right into what is probably your favorite segment, the interview with a special guest. And this week, we have the most special guest. We're welcoming to Crashing the War Party, Scott Horton. Scott as probably needs no um, introduction He's been on the show before. He's a longtime friend of both of us, me and Daniel, and was one of the first guests on Crashing the War Party. Aside from this long, his long-running podcast, Scott Horton is the author of two recent massive tomes, The Exhaustingly Researched and the Always Salient Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. He recently released a compendium of his interviews called Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And while well, he is everywhere, and I'm so happy that he could spend some time with us today. Thank you so much, Scott, and great to see you again. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, great to be with you. And you're in the book, Hotter Than the Sun, everyone should know. Cool. I, I appreciate that. I, I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed uh, with humbleness because I, I don't know well, why I'm in the book. <laughs> yeah. But, no, I'll tell you um, a story real quick. Uh, one of my guys came to me and said, look what I did. And it was a 300-page PDF of transcripts of interviews I had done about nuclear weapons over the last 20-something years. Nobody even asked him. He just served it up wow. on a golden platter, as the Saudis would say, um, about George Bush handing a rock to Iran. And so uh, we cut a few and added a few and put that thing out. And I'm really proud. It reads really well. You know, I know it's kind of a tough sell read my book of interview transcripts, but I think it stands up. Yeah. I think it's great. Well, yeah. And, and right. So, because, you know, I have to say, you know, when I, you know, meet new people, whether you be in Washington, you know, foreign policy, national security related war, you know, anti-war uh, groups, I meet people and inevitably they say, Oh, I heard I I heard you on Scott Horton. It's you know it, it yeah sure they'll say yeah I read your writing, but it's either I read your writing on antiwar.com or I heard you on Scott Horton. And um, which if that's true, that means that they know all about why the counterinsurgency in Afghanistan is not going to work, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. That's that's all of my most interviews of you is talking about how this yeah. counterinsurgency doctrine is so bankrupt they shouldn't try it. And we were right, damn it. So right. Yeah. But I mean, I just I feel like you've just engendered such a following out there. Um, so I'm not surprised that one of your fans came to you and said, I've I've pulled together all of your your interviews in a tidy little package, because I mean, it's just all, all the work that you've done and how many and, and people that you've reached. And it's 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 left, right, independent. And that's um, that's unique. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. I mean, this is um. <laughs> Part of signing up with antiwar.com, and in fact, just from my point of view, just part of being a libertarian is, I mean, I got to prioritize, right? And I rather try to get everyone to be anti-war than to be libertarians. Yeah. 
And then if they can be libertarians too, then that's like a good after effect. Mm -hmm. But I rather ask people not to change their whole identity. I really just want them to change their opinion on this one issue. We ought to not be doing this stuff and try to build a consensus on that. And I think the problem is people have often thought is sort of left over from Vietnam that if you're anti-war, then somehow that has something to do with Janis Joplin and bubble letters and Woodstock and passivism yeah dirt weed and whatever you know so it's just um all these connotations that really have nothing to do with with our current situation at all that's sort of this baggage so that was why when ron paul ran in 2008 and stomped rudy giuliani into the ground on the stage on the question of the motivation for al-qaeda's war against the united states that was a huge thing for i don't know 10 million americans overnight maybe 20 went oh I can change my opinion on this thing and I can still be me, right? Because here's a guy who's a conservative Republican congressman from Texas. And he's saying, I don't believe in this stuff and you sure don't have to either. And people are like, oh, because it all comes down to kind of social psychology, right? What are your people going to think about what you think? It's a big deal. And so uh, then Donald Trump came and he was up against Jeb Bush. So he wisely, rather than making the same mistake that McCain and Romney had made, he decided to beat Jeb Bush over the head with W. Bush's failures. And, and of course, being Trump, he would say things. I mean, these are pretty close quotes. Like, W. Bush's decision to go to the Middle East, never mind just Iraq, but just the Middle East. It's the worst decision any American president <laughs> ever made. And that's your fault, too, Jeb, because you didn't stop him, right, or whatever. So then he's demanding that if you like me, you hate the Middle East wars now. And then so the Republican rank and file, not only was he giving them permission, he was kind of demanding that they change their opinion and jettison W. Bush's legacy, which is the single greatest accomplishment of Donald Trump's life. Well, tied with defeating Jeb and Hillary was was getting the right wing to think like you can still be a tough guy and not be for wasting 10 trillion dollars, killing three million people and accomplishing absolutely nothing and getting your brother's legs blown off over it and the rest, you know. Yeah, but I would, I mean, we got to give Ron Paul the credit for most of that because he was steering the right in that direction. It's just Donald Trump made it okay to say all that stuff out loud in the, in the Republican forum. Right. You know, and, and, and yeah, all the power to him. But I feel like Ron Paul was the one that really made that ground fertile for, for Trump to come in and take it over the finish line, so to speak, with Republicans, mainstream Republicans. And we did have, what, I think uh, seven or nine Republicans in the, maybe 10 Republicans in the House who had co-sponsored the Yemen resolution. And we might have got a few more votes than that. So yeah, that's, you know, definitely uh, a small minority, but a committed start. Yeah. Of course, you know, Mitch McConnell's party and McCarthy's party and all that is still... W. Bush's party in the Congress for the most part. But I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing promising signs on the right. There are a lot of um, non-libertarian Republicans like, say, Matt Gates, for example, or even mm-hmm. Joshua Hawley. You might not agree with them on their domestic policies, but I feel like right. they um, have taken what Trump started and they're continuing down a restraint ro- road, which they didn't have to. They could have just said, well, that was Trump's bag. You know, we're not interested in that <laughs> issue anymore. Um, you know, Ukraine, let's give them all the money and, and, and weapons we, we want. But those are the people who are questioning the aid and the oversight of the aid and, 
and um, you know our continued commitment to fighting a proxy war there, um, along with Rand Paul, of course. But um, it does seem to have branched out to that those populist Republicans who sort of emerged during the Trump years. Right. And, you know, it does come down to just like public relations and stuff, right? Like the common narrative is the Democrats are weak. They need to be tougher. And that's the words just already, you know, baked into being a Republican candidate or Republican congressman. Like that's what you're supposed to say. And so to take a opposite stance from that, it should be easy. Joe Biden is senile and reckless and crazy. And he's spending money we don't have picking mm-hmm. fights that we can't win, that we even could lose in the sense of how uh, everyone loses a nuclear war. And so, you know what I mean? All that is absolutely correct and should be an easy take for any of them, you know, to make. But it it does come down to setting the precedent, you know, um, mm-hmm. having people, especially right-leaning guys. That's why, to me, um, the group Bring Our Troops Home. US is so important. Yes, and concerned veterans for America too. Uh-huh. It's just you know quite contrary to that whole 1960s hippie kind of narrative. These guys are right leaning libertarian and Republican veterans of the right. 21st century terror wars from Iraq and Afghanistan mostly, and other places too, and. Um, and so, you know, they're all about their constitutional oath. And they're, all they're doing is insisting that the Congress and the president and the rest of the government abide by theirs. Yep. And, you know, I don't know why it took me forever to figure this out, Kelly, but I think this is really actually kind of a big disconnect. This is why, remember, Ron Paul got more donations from uh, veterans and active duty military than any of the other Republicans in uh, 2008 and more than all the Republicans and Obama combined in 2012 um, was because he was saying all this anti-war stuff with all the constitutionalism Uh about it, right? uh And so I'm not a veteran. I don't know this firsthand, but and this is why it took me a while to finally figure out like the key here, right? That like any other government employee, you take your oath to the constitution, it's just checking a box to get the job. It doesn't mean anything, not really, right? But these guys, they're killing people and risking their lives and seeing their buddies get killed and seeing innocent people caught in the middle. And it's all based on this sacred oath that they're defending this constitution. That's right defending the freedom of the American people. and They're putting absolutely everything on the line. So when they take that oath, it means everything. So when they hear a guy like Ron Paul, who was in 2008, he was the only veteran in the race. Oh, no, I'm sorry. In 2012, he was the only vet in the race. McCain was there in 08. Um, And of course, he was a doctor in the Air Force, our guy. Um, But he understood that. And of course, and, and that's, I think, probably part of why Ron Paul is so dedicated to the Constitution, too, is he really meant that when he took that oath in a way that other government employees don't I think an ATF agent cares about the Constitution. Come on. You know, um, I think you hit it on the head because I found that, too, when I talked to veterans and, and folks on the right. And I think they were. I feel like they emerged from the, the global war on terror feeling and knowing that something wasn't right that those wars were a failure, uh, that we'd been lied to in large part by the politicians and, and the bureaucrats in Washington. But they look at the left and they go, those people don't look like me. Like they're right. not speaking my language, the anti-war, the peace stuff. I just, I can't associate. Um, I just, they're not resonating with me. And then I feel like Ron Paul came and, 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 and 
and, and combined with the constitutional issue, they found that they could articulate what they were feeling about the wrongness of the war and how they felt betrayed by Washington with, with, while still maintaining whatever, whatever, whatever patriotism or love for the military, like the rank and file, maybe not the leadership, um, particularly not the civilian leadership, but I feel like when I was writing for the American conservative and even the work I'm trying to do at the responsible statecraft is that I'm giving people a voice to criticize the war policies, um, from a different perspective. It, uh, and that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a center right perspective, libertarian, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And so I, I agree there it's, it's, that's fertile ground. And I think that's why your show is so popular. Um, why, uh, some of these websites like libertarian Institute, I, I dare say responsible statecraft, but antiwar.com because they're right. attracting people like, I don't ideologically fit in with the lefty crowd. But I, I, I want to feed my mind on all this anti-war stuff and that, that speaks to me, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, this is uh, my bias because I studied it for one semester in junior college. And that's the, it's all about social psychology. It's all about what people think other people think of them. And then it's like the brave thing to go ahead and disagree with the people who are like you because then what are they all going to think of you? That's what it almost all comes down to. And that was the magic of Ron Paul and then, as I was saying, even Donald Trump saying that kind of thing. And that is what's so great about, you know, not just bring our troops home, but, you know, their major project is defend the guard. And so here they're going straight back to James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, and saying, we'll nullify the world empire. You can't have our state guard troops. That's the law. You can't have our state guard troops, or national guard troops, whatever you call them, because they're sort of both, but they're the same thing, really, um, depending on which state you're in. But uh, they stay under the governor, and the president can't have them for combat missions overseas without an official declaration of war from the Congress, which we all know means never. And so that's it. And you can't have one of these wars without the National Guard filling in as the reserves, essentially, is the way that they're used in the wars, certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan to a great degree. And so, um, and then you have Republicans, Libertarian and Ron Paul conservative Republicans in the state houses and state senates across the country. And they've got it introduced in, I think, more than 30 states now. And we haven't got it passed yet, but... Uh, there are some places where we might be able to enforce this confrontation. And it has the Pentagon completely panicked. You know, the News Hour did a 20-minute special on this on PBS. I didn't know that. Where, where, yeah, they were very concerned about, come on, here's your chance, Mr. Pentagon man, to tell us why these radicals ought to not be doing this, <laughs> you know? And, and, and then, you know, the generals come and threaten to take all their money away and all of these things. And so, but this is the fight we want to have, right? Um, the the 1960s hippies of the Vietnam War era got nothing to do with it. We're talking about 21st century combat veterans who are, you know, um, essentially their entire argument is based around their constitutional oath and their dedication to it. And now they're using it from, in a constitutional way, from, but also in a decentralized grassroots way from the bottom up to try to use the states to nullify and interpose between them and the national government to shut the empire down, stop wasting lives on these no-win missions. And, you know, as much as you and I look at how terrible these wars have been, imagine if you've really been over there in the Helmand province, you know, and then come back after all of that. I mean, just saying that is 
we know what that means, what, what those that Marines means. And, and, and Army, too, went through there. Um, and that's just one part of it, right? That, and, and now you come back, and what, what does anybody have to show for any of it? You watch ISIS roll right into Western Iraq, which with Obama's help, but yeah. And then, you know, watch the Taliban take right back over all of Afghanistan again. Bombing Somalia for 20 years, got nothing out of that. And so we're like, what are we doing? The calendar, and we used to say this back then, eventually the calendar is just going to win the argument. That How can you say it takes 22 years to kill 400 men? I and mean, what the hell is the terror war if it's 20 years in Afghanistan and then right back to where it was when we invaded? The, not even after we leave, but even on our way out. And the Taliban walks right into uh, Kabul. You know, they didn't even fight their way in like the fall yeah. Saigon. They just walked right in, strolled right in. Well, and the sad oh. thing, Scott, getting back to the National Guard, is yeah. that we wouldn't have been able to stay there for 20 years if it wasn't for the National Guard right. reserves. That's right. So we used our citizen soldiers to, to protract that war far beyond its cell date <laughs> in this country. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do not blame them at all because we've, 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 we've twisted the whole nature of what it means to be a National Guardsman. Uh, it's, it's, your, your fealty should be the Constitution and in your state, your citizen soldier. And they were used and abused, I think, at, and at almost 50 percent at one point were national were part time soldiers. And then on top of it, they had to fight for benefits when they got back because they weren't considered full time, you know, mm-hmm. active duty when they're active duty, but they weren't full timers. And so they had to fight for certain benefits. Um, they had to fight to keep their jobs. Yeah, there's laws on the books that says that their employers have to keep them. But come on, there were many, many cases where um, employers just squeeze these men and women out because they, they'd be rotating in and out all the time. So they were really full-time soldiers, but didn't have the the support system of being, you know, um, the active duty military full-timers. So they were in some weird la-la land. And for what? So we could keep a war going for 22 years. Right. And then they get shortchanged on their duties and the risks they take and the equipment that they get in the field by the regular army and that kind of thing, get yeah. treated as junior partners and junior left out partners. There. Yeah. And this is a uh, part of Dan McKnight's story was I'm almost certain he was army national guard in Afghanistan and got climbed up a mountain and got on the satellite phone to his governor and said, I need you to, or maybe he was the Congressman at the time and said, Listen, we need ammo and we need you to intervene here because we don't have the equipment. We need to fight the battles that we're made to fight here. And then I think it was the governor then. And then later he went to D.C. and betrayed him. You know, he like he he did. It was Senator Rich. Is that his name? Sounds uh, familiar. I'm sorry. Jim, I think it's Jim Rich, something like that. Um, and did him a solid as governor <laughs> and then went to D.C. and sold him out. But um, but anyway, so listen, and by the way, for people listening, uh, especially for combat veterans or, or just whatever kind of veterans uh, from these wars who are interested in this stuff, um, I, to me, it's, I think, the most important organization in America, depending on how you weigh it. Um, it's uh, bringourtroopshome.us, and then their project is defendtheguard.us. And that was, you know, Michael Bolden, the great Michael Bolden from the Tenth Amendment Center came up with the idea, and Pat McGeehan introduced it in the uh, House of Delegates in West Virginia was the start of it. And then, it, yeah, it's this huge thing. And, you know, 
uh, I've gone and testified with these guys at a couple of these state house hearings and they don't really like me. I don't really fit in right. And I keep telling them like, I don't, in fact, I kind of quit participating. I'm, I'm better off kind of advising, but because I, I don't cut the right shit, but back on the social psychology <laughs> thing, you know, we brought this guy who was, um, you know, a Lieutenant Colonel or something who'd gone to West Point and he got up there and went, I went to West Point and they go, wow, you went to West Point, you know, like he's George Washington himself now <laughs> or something, you know? And the guy's like, yeah, I went to West Point. And they're like, okay, well, show us your hand. We'll eat out of it. You know, what do you, what do you want us to believe, Mr. West Point, man? And then he says the good stuff. We need to nullify the president's abuse of our guard forces. And no, it wouldn't be an unpatriotic thing to do. It would be the patriotic thing to do. Right. And then there he is. He's wearing his dress uniform, I think. That's the way I remember it. Maybe not. Maybe he's just wearing a suit. But he's saying, you know, look, um, this is the right thing to do. And it's okay for you to do it because I'm telling you it's okay for you to do it. See? And then it actually, you know, almost, you know, there's this is in, the one I'm thinking of is in the Texas legislature. And it got out of committee and then they, you know, basically rewrote it before it went to the floor or some kind of thing. But it got out of committee. And that was what it was, is, you know, these guys, um, combat veterans and uh, and officers up there testifying in favor of the thing. And it and it was funny, too, watching the Democrats because they're like, well, if this is like a Republican thing, then to be a good Democrat means that we support wars now, right? You know, <laughs> the opposite of you guys. Yeah. You can see how they were. They're like, oh, this is our opportunity to be patriotic and accuse the Republicans of not being patriotic. So that's just how they yeah. roll, man. I'm sorry. I know. It'll give you a headache. I mean, yeah. that that sort of leads me to what I was going to ask you, because I, I really wanted to get your, your sense of some of the bigger things that are happening uh, this year in foreign policy. Um, so I'm going to kind of ask you a probably an unfair question. <laughs> uh, my question is, which was the bigger geopolitical event of the year, Russia invading Ukraine or Elon Musk invading and taking over Twitter and why? Ah, that's <laughs> funny. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm going to have to say the war, of course. Um, yeah. I mean, people have been killed. The chances of conflict between NATO and especially the United States and Russia have been raised by some percent. I don't know exactly how you measure these things, but to an intolerable degree. Uh And uh, uh, high tens of thousands of people have been killed at least. You know, I don't know if it's over 100,000. Because of the fog of war and like the uh, misinformation. And and what's, you know, a best case scenario, somebody flies in from Pango Pango and negotiates a ceasefire right now. What's the future of American Russian relations from here on out? And how are we going to do this without a full regime change here and maybe there too? Uh, to just, you know, we would need this was the great disappointment of Donald Trump, of course, right? Was he wasn't one of them, but boy, was he not one of us either. And here's yeah. a guy who just can't even read, you know, and just doesn't even know nothing. And so he couldn't make a clean break from their policy. And of course, they did frame him for treason with Russia, which was kind of a big deal. Um, but he just did not have the wherewithal to just say, listen, forget Obama and Bush and Clinton and Bush. I ain't married to their policies at all. To hell with them. Here's how we're doing it now. And then, but do it right and work something out. And um, he just didn't know enough to, to know how to break and what to do. 
and but, and what know, the issues were. And so look at where we're stuck now. Biden came in and I mean, hell, even even Trump sent all these weapons into Ukraine and helped provoke this war. And there's a quote from his son saying, yeah, let's see you call us pro-Russian traitors now, now that we're giving all these weapons to Ukraine. So it's like, like these guys are just playing checkers. You know, they got completely hemmed in. Mm -hmm. I was even the FBI told CNN, they go, well, if we can't remove him through the 25th Amendment, at least we can rein him in with this investigation. You know, and it worked. It just, you know, right, it worked he like was a all open to, He was all open to working with Russia from the outset. And so they said, oh, really? Well, we think Putin helped you win. And uh, you're, I mean, and, and dare I say it, they acted as though he wasn't legitimately president because the Russians somehow meddled and made him president. Yeah. So he'd been on the back foot from the very beginning when it comes to his Russia policy. And so therefore it went from let's talk to here's some sanctions and more sanctions and here's some weapons for Ukraine. And people forget that, that he was tougher on Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine than his predecessors were. Oh, they brag about that now, you know. His team goes, yeah, well, Putin didn't invade Ukraine when tough guy Donald Trump was there to keep him at bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's it's really unfortunate. And um, and I do think that... um, Look, I, I, I am not the expert when it comes to military affairs and all that. I defer to Daniel Davis and Colonel Douglas McGregor and those guys but uh, on a lot of this stuff. But the best I can tell, we're talking essentially about an unstoppable force versus an immovable object here in this yeah. war, where the Russians have obviously a, a bigger country, a richer country, and more men and ultimately more equipment and more time and Yet on the Ukrainian side, they're fighting a defensive war that they're morally and, and you know, completely committed to their side in fighting and resisting the foreign invasion of their country. And they're backed by the wealthy Western powers that are giving them all of this equipment and intelligence. And they bragged about helping them kill Russian generals, helping them shoot down Russian planes full of special operations guys, helping them sink the the uh, flagship of the Russian Black Sea fleet and all this stuff. Um, And then now with, you know, Putin's, you know, whether whatever you call the strategic or tactical withdrawal or outright defeat or whatever you call it in September 10th, 11th, 12th there, when Ukraine took back Northern Luhansk from uh, the Russian forces, then Putin reacted by calling up the reserves and then announcing the annexation and signed a law and implemented, supposedly, this law outright annexing the easternmost four provinces, not just the Donbass, but all of Zaporozhia and Kherson as well, even though he doesn't control it all. But that's just throwing the gauntlet down by literally a thousand miles or whatever, hundreds and hundreds of miles, square miles of territory there. Um, that he's claiming is his now. Then on the other side, you have the Americans saying that they're telling the New York Times, we expect this war to last for years and we will commit whatever it takes for as long as it takes until the Russians are driven out of every last square inch of Ukrainian soil, including Crimea. Yep. Well, so what's the solution to that? Like one side has to lose or they have to talk and work it out. And, you know, as late as August, Putin was essentially offering his peace terms the same terms he'd offered all along. Well, not anymore. Now that he's annexed these four territories in the result and, you know, his uh, reaction after the Luhansk disaster there, 
Um, now he's saying, well, of course, any talks would have to begin with your recognition of our sovereignty over Kherson's Aprosia, Donetsk, and Luhansk, too, which, of course, is a total non-starter. It's never going to happen. Right. So, and, and we know for a fact, it was obvious at the time, but it's well-reported um, and confirmed by Fiona Hill and Foreign Affairs and the rest that they could have had a peace deal in March and April. And the Americans and the Brits encouraged them to not, even blackmailed them and said, you'll get no more support from us if you sign a peace. They had a different strategy, weaken Russia. We're going to use this war to extend Russia, as the Rand Corporation would say, to, to as they all bragged, Admiral Stravridis, who would have been Hillary Clinton's Secretary of Defense, told the New York Times, all of them told the New York Times, we're going to replicate Afghanistan in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. We're going to do Rambo 3. And this is just months, this is three, four months after they finally finished losing Afghanistan yep. after supposedly no ironies there. the consequences <laughs> from the reactions of the last time. They also invoked Syria. We're like, even if 1980s is ancient history for you, that's your grandpa's day or something like that. Well, um, what about Syria? Obama's dirty war in Syria that led directly to the rise of the Islamic State Caliphate that conquered all of Western Iraq and caused Iraq War Three that then led to the yeah. deaths of another probably half a million people or more in Syria and Iraq during Things all that of that. Still in rubble to this day, like Mosul. Yeah, exactly. And they go, yeah, but it cost the Russians and the Iranians a lot of money to intervene to help Assad. God. See, and so we're, we're aren't we clever? And we're going to do that again. And even though we're talking about, you know, and, and look, we already have reports of weapons going everywhere. And this is the headline on antiwar.com today is that, oh, yeah, you know, all those weapons we're pouring in. You're right. They are turning up in criminal black markets all over the world. So, you know what we need to do? We need to send American combat forces into Ukraine to monitor and provide oversight for the right. weapons we're pouring in. Only a few after. We already know that they got CIA and special operations forces in there from reports in the New York Times and the Intercept. And so they're just escalating that. And like, just think of what happens. A single missile strike kills a dozen Americans over there providing advice and whatever aid and comfort to the Ukrainians. Then what does Joe Biden do? And this thing is on a ladder of escalation and everybody is a stupid macho pinhead idiot in this thing you got nobody willing i mean it's amazing to me only a little bit amazing to me kelly but it ought to be the case damn it that at night biden and blinken and sullivan and newland can sit there and drink brandy and say to each other okay this is kind of our fault like we need to recognize the role that we played in setting this up and maybe we can find a way to you know, allow f for the Russians to save a little bit of face and ramp this thing down. And they just won't. They're not even honest that. with each other, you Let know, at all. Let me the devil's advocate for a second, because sure. there seems to be, uh, and this is, I don't know if it's contrived or if it's real, there seems to be a little bit of a split within the administration about what to do at this point. So uh, you remember, was it Mark Milley, who I'm not a huge mm -hmm. fan of, saying things about a month ago, like this needs to stop. We need to get people to talk. So we're not, this war is not going to uh, end with a military victory only with diplomacy, which seems to be at loggerheads with some other voices in the, in the administration mm -hmm. who, when, when asked about that said something to the effect of, Oh yeah, we're all for diplomacy, but only when the Ukrainians are ready 
or they are in a military position, uh, like a like they're they're in the catbird seat, and they're in 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 that, and then they'll be willing to talk and open up diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Is there? Do you sense that there are right minded people within the administration who who may be pushing for diplomacy against? some of the activist elements of the administration, like the Victoria Newland, so to speak, yeah. pushing back? Or is that like a fantasy in my mind that and maybe I'm, I'm pulling that out to, 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 to make myself feel better? Like there's got to be some adults in the room there. Um, yeah, I, maybe Biden my, is one of them. I don't know. My reading of it is that Millie already lost that. You know, he took his case to the New York Times and everything, and then, you know, Sullivan and Blinken said, no, we disagree, which is the same thing that keeps happening to where you have, you know, the eggheads and weenies that are way out to the right, so to speak, which is a stupid way to say it, more hawkish than the military. And, and you know, the standing army is the cooling saucer, as Jefferson would say, on the passions of these dweebs in their pinstripe suits. Um, you know, I bet Anthony Blink has never been a fist fight in his life, you know. Um, but look, I mean, when Millie said we should talk, he actually even put it like this. He said, look, you guys have done, I'm very roughly paraphrasing here. You guys have done a really great job taking back Kurson. Let's go ahead and talk now. Yeah, exactly. And I think he Which, knows better. Yeah. And in other words, let's quit while you're behind. But not so far behind behind. her. Yeah. And so, but look, I mean, what was he, I'm inferring this only, but I don't know how else to interpret it. He was saying, you guys are going to give up Mariupol. You're losing the whole Azov coast between Crimea and Russia. That's gone. That's the Southern Donbass. Like, you know, it depends on where you draw the line as approach. I'm not picturing a perfect map in my head, but pretty close. But I think it's the, you could say Southern Donetsk province, is the land bridge that connects all the way the coast, all the way to Crimea. Mm-hmm. And so maybe or maybe not uh, lose Aprosia to something to talk about. But that seems to be the thinking of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then what do we get? And so we get a policy that's just based on a bunch of statements, a bunch of, you know, you can see it's just like some sitcom where they come to agreement when they're sitting in the room going, well, I think it should be like this. And I think you could say, well, let's do like this. But it's not what any wise single person would choose. It's this consensus committee yeah. kind of thing where, you know, if there was any wisdom in the room, it would be listen to the chairman of the joint chiefs, which I don't know exactly how to interpret this either. But I think that means that the other chiefs agree with him, right? Like he, he's yeah. representing their opinion that, you know, we're kind of pushing this whole yeah. pick a fight with Russia thing far enough now. And like, why not go ahead and defer to that? It's the same uh, uh, problem with, especially always with the Democrats but and Republicans too. But, you know, Barack Obama could have easily hidden behind Robert Gates. And at that time, I guess it was, um, uh, well, different times, Mullen and uh, Casey, um, they were for restraint in Libya and in Syria when uh, Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice and Samantha Power and all these wanted to fight. And all Obama had to say was, listen, my secretary of defense, who's a holdover from W. Bush, he says we have too many wars already and not to do another one. That's all he had to say. In fact, he could have said, hey, Gates, I'll tell you what, 
would you go and explain this to John McCain for me and tell him to shut the F up, please? Thanks. And then that way we can do this. Yeah. But he didn't do that. Instead, he goes, okay, Hillary Clinton, whatever you want. You want to run on your your great success in Libya in 2016? I'll let you have a war as a political favor. And of course, she ran away from it in 2016 because who was going to run on Libya by then? Right. Smart power? Yeah, right. In fact, she blamed it on Obama. In the debate, they asked her about it. She goes, hey, I was just Secretary of State, man. That was him that did that. Him and the Libyans, they blew it. But do you anyway. think Do you think that Republicans um, in 2023 are going to emerge as the real challenge to the administration and the war party in Washington no. on Ukraine? No. No, no I, I mean... Mitch McConnell is the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. And uh, what's his first name? I always forget it. McCarthy in the House. Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, Kevin. I mean, these guys are very... being tested right now. I mean, there's a a chance he might not be Speaker because of this Freedom Mm -hmm. Caucus uh, challenge. But he has to change the rules. Right now, um, and, and forgive me, something about whether or not a single person can say... I want to vote. I want to put out a vote whether we can get rid of the, the speaker mm-hmm. and as opposed to they have to caucus and get rid of him. So I there's a, there's a question of whether he will actually be speaker. I'm sure he will in the end. But it does, you know, with the, the razor thin majority that the, the House or the Republicans in the House have mm-hmm. means that those agitators – who are like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and a lot of these Republicans who have been mm-hmm. ranting over um, uh, Ukraine aid and Biden's policy in Ukraine mm-hmm. are going to have a little bit more uh, oomph. And hey, I retract my answer. I retract my answer. Here's my different answer instead is we got to do everything we can to strengthen the position of the anti-war right in the yeah. House. And to, to, you know, bolster them and anyone who is, you know, their supporters on and on these issues who wants to, you know, apply this pressure and make this case. I mean, we have to change the narrative. They can join up with the Tom Massey's of of the House and and others who have been on our side from the beginning. Yeah. Can you imagine if he was the Speaker of the House? I love that guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there are powerful people who would work very hard to prevent it, but... You know, um, it's also the case, too, that sometimes the bad guys don't really, you know, know why they should oppose the thing because they're not that yeah, smart. And I realize it's almost like a, a, a window of time of opportunity because, let's be frank, a lot of these Republicans, if um, Joe, Joe Biden was not president and it was a Republican president who was very hawkish, and he said, we got to go in there and we got to we got to get those Ruskies and we're going to put more weapons in. We might even fly some missions and no fly zone and whatnot. A lot of these Republicans were, yeah, you go for it, dude. And so I'm not I'm not, um, you know, under any illusion that a lot of this is politics and they just want to do the opposite of what Biden is doing. So, uh, I, I, like I said, there's a, a short window of opportunity <laughs> That we, if they're talking our language just for a little while, to just use that to our advantage. 
And then there are the more principled people who we can count on, you know, time and again, like the Rand Pauls. And, you know, I don't really like Matt Gates. I don't like his uh, politics. I don't even know if I, I like him much. I don't know him personally. But, you know, since I think the last time you and I even talked on Crashing the War Party, he's been consistent. He's consistent on getting out of Afghanistan and the Middle East. And, and he's been consistent on, on Ukraine and other restraint you know, issues uh, pertaining to our war policy. So, yeah, I mean, there are people who have even surprised me. Yeah. And um, look, it's again, it's all social psychology and narrative building and all of this. The problem with Biden isn't that he's weak. It's that he's reckless. It's pretty simple. You know, he's getting us into, I mean, to me, it's just absolutely insane to think that you could have a fight break out on Russia's border and that you wouldn't just have general strike on planet Earth, all seven and a half, eight billion people just demanding that the foreign minister of this, that, and the other place all meet in Geneva and iron out a ceasefire right now. You can't have a fight like this, yeah. you know, right on Russia's border, and especially you know, look at the shape of these countries. Where Kharkiv is just 300 miles due south of Moscow, you know, because of the way the border's drawn there, you know. Um, this is just, I mean, imagine something like this. Imagine the Russians outright backing an anti-American force in Mexico to the tune of billions of dollars and sending in all their special yeah. operations forces to train them and all of these things. I mean, America, I don't know, like, I don't know what president wouldn't just nuke Moscow over that. I just and you guys I'm, have three days to knock this off, or we're going to go to war. Yeah. You. That's it. And I, no I question, agree. they'd invade Mexico. I, you mm-hmm. know what bothers me is I what the problem with this Ukraine situation is. I find that it's so entangled with domestic politics at this point, mm-hmm. and and for you know. I, I think Biden himself has fed into a lot of that. So when he gets in behind a podium and he said, he says things like, you know, um, these MAGA people are no better or worse than, or no better than Putin and his proto fascists, you know, over there in Ukraine. And he conflates the authoritarianism that he's pointing to in Europe with Trump and Republican supporters of Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it creates a situation where people have to say, well, if if I'm for, quote unquote, democracy here in the United States and I must be for an aggressive policy when it comes to Russia, because Putin, Trump, Viktor Orban, you know, they're all the same. And it, it it's become this conflation that allows the Democrats uh, to take some moral stand And um, and it it makes me very nervous as somebody who is a principled anti-war advocate to uh, see what is right. The politics uh, and the abuse and manipulation of our domestic politics, uh, creating a new McCarthyism, if you will, uh, so that there are people who I know are very uncomfortable with what's going on in Ukraine, they they're they're not all together in support. They're support of the people, but perhaps not the policies that we're pushing. They they see this really going to a bad end, but they're afraid to talk about it openly mm-hmm. because they don't want to be um, they don't want to be equated with Putin, with MAGA, with Trump, 
And wow, what a campaign, you know, Um, just shut down your critics by calling them Hitler, you know? And the thing is, yeah, it works every time. They do this every time. And what's funny is you just look back at it and go, well, was there anyone really in America who was pro Manuel Noriega or David Koresh or Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Assad, Putin, Chairman Xi? You don't have partisans. Like in the Cold War, especially early in the Cold War, you did have the Communist Party that was loyal to the Soviet Union and stuff like that. You have anything like that in America at all. 20 years ago, if you said, come on, Saddam rules, what, five out of nine cities in his country or whatever it is, he doesn't even control his whole country. He's got no Navy, no Air Force, no weapons, no alliance with the guy in the beard over there. Give me a break. Oh, yeah, that's because you love Saddam Hussein (laughs) so much and you're dedicated to his longevity and power. There wasn't a single person anywhere between Bangor and San Diego was going to agree that Saddam Hussein was anything but a thug. The point was he was a powerless one. He yeah. was no longer the man he was back when Ronald Reagan gave him billions of dollars worth of weapons and including intelligence to use to target Iranians with uh, chemicals, with sarin and tape and nerve gas. But anyway, um, they, they just do the same thing over and over again. Oh, Assadists. You're an Assadist. Oh, yeah. There's no such thing as that. I saw that guy, <laughs> uh, what, um, Noah, whatever his name, the neoliberal on Twitter. Talking about, yeah, the Putinists. You know, this is right, you know, right in February or something. I go, look, man, you know that you just made that word up because there is no pro-Russian bund in America anywhere. There's just nothing like that. There are no Putinists. Only on 4chan, where they think he's a strong male character or whatever (laughs) thing. There's no political faction in America loyal to Russia. Not even Russian expats have political factions in America that are dedicated to Russia's point of view yeah. in form. You, they don't exist. They don't exist. You know, I wrote my thing back in 2020. That's now becoming my book. It was, you know, two years before the war It's called, uh, it was a speech, an hour long speech. I gave why the, uh, America, uh, the new cold war with Russia is all America's fault. And I had the former chief of the CIA Soviet division, Ray McGovern. And I had Lyle Goldstein, from the Naval War College. I sent it to them, and I was like, hey, guys, just let me know if you think I'm off base here or what. And they both were like, nah, that's perfect. So Lyle Goldstein is either a Soviet plant at the Naval (laughs) War College, or he's just this really smart military analyst guy. That's a pretty good summary of how Clinton and Bush and Obama and Trump and Biden, oh, this is before Biden, uh, and Trump got us into this mess. It's just, you know, it's NATO expansion, anti-missile missiles out of uh, dual-use missile launchers in Romania and Poland, color-coded revolutions and attempted ones, you know, from the Clinton years all the way through Obama and including twice in Ukraine in 10 years. And hell, even including, they tried to overthrow Belarus in 2020. Donald mm-hmm. Trump I don't know if he even knew, but his government tried to do another coup in Belarus, of all things. Can you imagine? And so, and then in January, right before the war, they tried to do one in Kazakhstan. Okay, it really, really, really looks like they did. 
you know, they might have outsourced it to Turkey or something, but clearly <laughs> they had a riot over some gas prices and then all of a sudden very well armed. And oh, yeah, I remember that. Men were seizing airports and banks and police stations and things all over the country. And it took Putin marching troops in there to rouse them back out again. There's every reason to think that that was America that did that right when they're warning that Russia's about to invade Ukraine, that they're going to go ahead and proceed anyway. And, and they are presumed guilty on that until proven otherwise, if you ask me. They've been screwing around with all of these things. And that's what caused the war. You know, they're, and, and George W. Bush insisting he's going to bring uh, Ukraine into NATO. And, of course, um, just uh, in, in um, September, October, and November of 2021, Biden brought Zelensky to Washington and they had the State Department and the Defense Department put out these documents about our strategic partnership and how we're making them de facto members of NATO mm-hmm. through our interoperability programs and giving them all these weapons and all this training and all of these things, rubbing it right in Putin's face. Even if we're not making them actual members, we're making them de facto members anyway. So it makes no difference. And, and then they act like, just as always, I'll leave you with this. This is what, John, this is what uh, George Kennan said in 1998 to Thomas Friedman. He goes, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen here. The people who, uh, he goes, we're going to expand NATO into Eastern Europe and the Russians are going to react. And then all the people who are for expansion now, who are saying that it's fine, the Russians won't do anything, they'll say, see, that's why we have to do yes. that because that's how the Russians are. And then Kennan, who was, when he was alive, the single most respected Russia exactly. thinker in American foreign policy, period, right? Higher than Kissinger on the scale mm-hmm. of respectable graybeard Council yep. on Foreign Relations guys, said, but that's just not right. It's you. You're the ones who are doing this. And who was? Strobe Talbot, he told you so. We shouldn't do this. And then he changed his mind and got on board for it. But he was right the first time, and he knows it. In fact, yeah. uh, that was Bill Clinton's guy that led NATO expansion. And in 2018, when it was less controversial to talk like this, the New York Times Magazine did a piece called The Russia Hands, where they went and talked to Strobe Talbot. And Talbot, he goes, and the, the reporter's like, well, you sure screwed up everything, didn't you, Strobe? Because everybody knows that. Even the New York Times Magazine knows that this is all America's fault. Strobe Talbot's fault. <laughs> of course it is. Now was the question, isn't this all your fault, Strobe? And Talbot says, well, listen, if you want a job in government, you have to follow the rule, which is you do what is in your nation's interest. And if you don't follow that rule, then you won't have your position very long. So there, one, he's saying, I was afraid I would get fired if I didn't do it. And he's saying, you know, two, you go for, you get, you get away with whatever you can. Was that how you do? Is that how you act in your personal life? Is that how you act in business? You get away with whatever you can. Well, that's always going to cause problems. That's not how you behave if you're a responsible and respectable person or nation state. But then he says, but you know, should we have had a higher, wiser perspective on our national interest rather than our more narrow, shorter-term interest? In other words, uh, in Austrian economist terms, right? Like, should we have had a uh, lower time preference? Should we have looked at it like, 
is it good for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren if we have this antipathy with Russia going on into the indefinite future while we're sitting on these stockpiles of hydrogen bombs? Or do we need a bunch of Polish votes to help Bill Clinton get reelected in Illinois? And do we need a bunch of money from Bruce Jackson and the mafia at Lockheed Martin Marietta, where they bankroll all of the neoconservative think tanks that push this policy and bankroll Newt Gingrich and his Republican Party revolution and the committee for NATO expansion and all of this racket. Do we take that Lockheed money? Do we let the Republicans keep it all? Or do we get some of it too? And this kind of thing. That's what he meant by our, you do what's in our interest, right? As they define it. Yes. You do what's in Bill Clinton's interest in 1996 not what's in the interests of the American people into the future. Right. And then, uh, and he's the That's one who what we need to consider right now. Right. Yeah, exactly. And well, we're living like, in the like mess that they made. Saying. Like, yeah. what will our relationship look if there will, there will be any relationship left between yeah. the West and Russia after all, after this is over? Because at some point it will be over. Yeah. And what will that look like? And the longer we're in this thing, the less chance there is going to be any relationship any functional relationship and you have to have one like you mentioned they're a powerful country they're a powerful engine for the economy they can't just be ignored they can't be destroyed um and so we're not thinking in that long-term interest mode right now and you remember kelly that um that interview with uh, george friedman from stratfor where he says that 2014 was the most obvious coup in world history the most blatant coup I don't in the world. Remember that. You ever no. read that? So this is the, the guy from Stratfor. Yeah. Um, and it's an interview with Commerceant. Um, and the thing is, you should really read that whole interview. It's very, you know, interesting. It gets right to the point. You can find this in other places too, where they talk about this, but he's just so frank about it that and he's, you know, it goes back to like basic Alfred, uh, Halford McKinder, you know, uh, America in the place of Great Britain. We're a naval power way over here. So how do we rule the old world there? And so we got to play all this balance of power politics on the continent and all of this stuff. And then as he puts it, um, loosely paraphrasing, the greatest nightmare. And this is, you could understand, I guess, why this is Britain's point of view in the era of the world wars or whatever, Mm -hmm. but this is supposed to be America's point of view now, that the, the worst thing that could happen would be an alliance between Germany and Russia. Then everyone between Germany and Russia is under their twin domination and they're impregnable from without they dominate the whole world island and we lose it and so if you're an imperial strategist playing this game that's the worst thing now if you're anyone else in the world you might think that violent conflict between germany and russia is the worst thing that could happen because the last two times it happened it was the worst thing that had ever happened and you might think that what we want is for germany and russia to be friends no matter what Build five pipelines between Germany and Russia. It's not blackmail. It's business. It's interdependence leading to peace if you play it right. It's just, if you know, if you're determined on having this great power conflict, I swear it sounds like 19th century mercantilist imperialist politics, right? That America just has no business playing. They call it the fair, equal, rules-based world order of free markets and free trade and the rule of law and all this, but it's not. They, at the same time, they, in their grand strategy, in their national security strategy, they call it great power competition. Well, what is that? 
That doesn't yeah. sound like the rules-based world order. Right. It sounds like our empire versus theirs. Exactly. And risking hydrogen bomb warfare to keep Germany and Russia from being friends. Are you kidding me? You know, but that's what Halford McKinder said. So what? That's stupid. Vigna <laughs> Brzezinski's dead too. Why do we have to do what they say? Exactly. Well, I say we do whatever Scott Horton says because you talk a lot of common sense. I just say put Ron Paul in charge of the yes. thing. It's obvious. He already said what to do a generation ago. Just come home. We just yeah. marched in. We can just come home. That's it. And you know what? I could even be extremely reasonable. We could even stay in NATO, but how about it's just a treaty and not an organization at all? If yeah. anybody ever invades France, we promise to come and help them. What the hell? All other things being equal, Kel, I'm being very reasonable this week, okay? <laughs> we, could, we could protect, we'll protect Mexico and Canada and, and uh, West Germany and France and England. I could dig it. But that's it. But, but, but we're not stationing any forces no. And since nobody's attacking any of these major hydrogen bomb powers, well, I guess Germany doesn't have nukes, but um, France and, and Britain certainly do. Since no one's attacking them in the next couple of hundred years anyway, and I think, you know, you just call it a, this is what they acted like. It's just a dinner party. NATO expansion? Oh, this is just where hoity-toity people have drinks together at night, and it's a social club, and it's fun, and there will never be any consequences from it, I promise. You know, you get all these guys... Just like in, in your great writings, I quote this, I quote you in Fool's Aaron talking about um, all the people at the think tank party during the Coindonistas promoting uh, the, the war in Afghanistan yeah. and all of their dress whites and their shiny blues and their shiny shoes and all of their things. Uh -huh. And this is like a scene. This is a social scene in Washington, D.C. Yeah. We're going to triple the Afghan war. We're going to kill hundreds of thousands of people and lose anyway. But I'm going to get a better job at a better think tank after this and all of that. It's just well, uh, I, theory, right? You know, we, uh, this has been a real treat and I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry that Dan couldn't be here. So you'll have to come on in 2023 to talk to both of us. You promise? I do. Absolutely. I'm happy to. And you know what? I just interviewed Daniel the other day. And I know he's only right top answerword.com right now. Great. Okay. Well, listen to that. And we'll be promoting your books on, on the show notes. And thank you so much, Scott, for, for being a guest on Crashing the War Party. Absolutely. Thank you, Kel, for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>